Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to CNN Tonight. I'm Jake Tapper in Washington. Election Day is only 12 days away, but many Democratic officials seem to believe, barring some major seismic event, control of the House of Representatives is all but gone. Democrats can feel the House seats slipping through their fingers, as some experts project Republicans could pick up maybe even 30 seats, and they only need five to win back the majority. Some in the Democratic Party are already performing pre-autopsies. You know, sometimes people just want to not feel as if uh, they are walking on eggshells. Uh, and, and, and they want some acknowledgement that life is messy. I am worried about the level of uh, voter turnout among young people and working people who will be voting Democratic. And I think, again, what Democrats have got to do is contrast their economic plan with the Republicans. Tonight, we look into the crystal ball to see what a Republican-led House of Representatives might actually look like. The House GOP sees these pending election results as a repudiation of where President Biden and Democrats are currently leading the country, and that is part of what is driving their legislative agenda. It's important to note that the party that runs the House typically engages in two types of legislation. One is built purely around messaging and firing up the base. Democrats, for instance, did that with sweeping gun reform measures, even though they knew the bill they passed wouldn't even get 50 votes in the Senate, let alone 60. The other kind of legislation is actual legislating. Last month, House Republicans laid out their legislative priorities, calling it their commitment to America. So let's Break it down and try to figure out exactly what the Republicans will try to do. A big focus, obviously, will be the economy. Republicans are vowing to repeal the $80 billion currently set aside, at least partly for new IRS agents in the bill that the Democrats called the Inflation Reduction Act. But on that very first day that we're sworn in, you'll see that it all changes. Because on our very first bill, we're going to repeal 87,000 IRS agents. According to the Washington Post, Republicans also want to extend Trump's tax cuts, which are set to expire in 2025. Another big agenda item is combating crime, not just boosting funding to hire more police, but demanding transparency from prosecutors and district attorneys who are, in the views of House Republicans, too lenient when it comes to prosecutions or plea deals. Republicans also want to reimpose Trump-era border restrictions to stem the flow of migrants coming from Mexico. There's also what they call a Parents' Bill of Rights, taking a page from the playbook of Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin, who was elected last year in Virginia, a state that Joe Biden won by 10 points, partially by appealing to parents' frustrations with remote learning and masking in schools. We're going to go to work 
in order to protect parents' rights and to make sure that there's transparency, to make sure that parents are fully informed and that parents make these most important decisions in conjunction with their child, not a bureaucrat, a politician. Potentially politically potent for parents. We'll see how it translates on the federal level, of course. Another big responsibility for Congress, the legislative branch, is supposed to be oversight of the White House or the executive branch. Now, we tend not to see much of that when the party controlling Congress also controls the White House. And from Republicans' perspective, as Congressman Michael Cloud of Texas told Politico, quote, it's not something where we're having to drum up, okay, what are we going to do? It's more of a limiting factor of we only have 50 weeks a year, unquote. So what's at the top of Republicans' list for oversight? The border and crime. And according to the likely next chair of the House Oversight Committee, Congressman James Comer of Kentucky, this. The whole reason we're investigating Hunter Biden is because we know that he's a national security threat and we fear that he has compromised Joe Biden. What else? Well, in the hours after the news broke of the FBI search for classified documents in President Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy tweeted, quote, when Republicans take back the House, we will conduct immediate oversight of this department, follow the facts, and leave no stone unturned. Attorney General Garland, preserve your documents and clear your calendar, unquote. General Garland will undoubtedly run into a familiar face in the halls of the Capitol, Dr. Anthony Fauci, even post-retirement, because Republicans have pledged to investigate the origins of covid and the federal government's handling of the epidemic. Unless Dr. Fauci decides to seek asylum in some foreign country whose Powerball jackpot is 287 chickens and a goat, and therefore which won't enforce a subpoena from the United States Congress, then Dr. Fauci, retirement or not, is going to be spending a lot of time in front of a congressional committee and committees if Republicans take back control. Damn it, you know, my Powerball had 287 chickens and a turtle. Mm. Anyway, Dr. Fauci has said that is fine with him, but... I'd be happy to cooperate so long as we make it something that is a dignified oversight, which it should be, and not just bringing up ridiculous things and attacking my character. That's not oversight. Nothing says dignified like the U.S. Congress. In addition, the likely next chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Congressman Michael McCall of Texas, has made it clear he wants to investigate the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. McCall said in a statement to CNN this evening, quote, we will also continue to demand answers to why the withdrawal from Afghanistan was such a disaster. The American people deserve transparency from this administration, especially when it comes to national security, and we will work to deliver that to them, unquote. But investigating... That's not the only I word you should expect to hear a lot more of in 2023. Another I word being thrown around by some Republicans, mostly in the MAGA wing, is impeachment. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia introduced articles of impeachment against President Biden on his first full day in the White House for abuse of power, for Hunter's foreign dealings. Yesterday, she offered this helpful advice for the president on how to prepare for GOP House control. They should advise them to consider resigning because there's there's a lot coming for for Joe Biden, not only Joe Biden, but Hunter Biden and, and other people linked with them. 
I don't think President Biden is on board with that. And as of now, it doesn't seem like Republican leaders are at least fully on board with the idea of impeaching President Biden. Republican leader Kevin McCarthy said this last month. We just went through four years of watching a political impeachment. We will uphold the law. We will not play politics with it, but we'll do whatever in the nature that the rules and facts take us to. Last week, when asked by Punchbowl News if anyone in the Biden administration had had actions that rose to the level of impeachment, McCarthy said, quote, I don't see it before me right now, unquote. But McCarthy is going to have to deal with this MAGA wing. And I'll get to that in a second. Biden's not the only one whom Republicans are talking about impeaching, we should note. I think one of the very first priorities of the new Republican Congress should be to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas. I think laying out the facts before the American people in a trial early next year is incredibly important. That's Republican Senator Ted Cruz talking about Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Senior Republican sources told CNN earlier this month that Mayorkas has become their number one target for impeachment given the crisis at the southern border and that it is a matter of when, not if, that Republicans start the impeachment proceedings, which Dana Bash asked Mayorkas about earlier this year. I am incredibly proud uh, to work with 250,000 dedicated and talented personnel, and I look forward to continuing to do so. No concern about that? I am not. He wasn't concerned six months ago. I wonder if he feels differently now, less than two weeks out from the election. Several Democratic committee chairs became household names during the Trump years. Some of their Republican successors during the Biden years could include Republican Congressman Mike Turner of Ohio on the House Intelligence Committee. Congressman Mike Rogers of Alabama is poised to take over the House Armed Services Committee. And meet your likely new chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Jim Jordan of Ohio. I don't know how you can ever convince me that President Trump didn't actually win this thing based on all the, the things you see. The election lies you just heard from Jim Jordan are significant because the likely next speaker, Kevin McCarthy, will be quite different from the previous two Republican speakers when it comes to dealing with this far right extreme in the House GOP caucus. House Speaker John Boehner viewed them with disdain. Listen, I'm a conservative Republican. All right, so is Liz Cheney. We're just not crazy. And, uh, you know, I, well, you, people in the media want to talk about these people being on the right. Uh, they're, on, they're in the crazy car, all right? Uh, it's got nothing to do with uh, being conservative. House Speaker Paul Ryan dealt with what was called the crazy caucus at arm's length. If the conservative cause depends on the populist appeal of one personality or of second-rate imitations, then we're not going anywhere. Well, we'll see. This wing of the party, the MAGA caucus, will be bigger and stronger than ever in 2023. And Kevin McCarthy will need their support to become and then to stay speaker. Hence, inviting Marjorie Taylor Greene to sit right behind him as he unveiled the commitment to America. Greene told the New York Times magazine that if McCarthy does not give her a lot of power and leeway, the Republican base is, quote, going to be very unhappy about it. I think that's the best way to read that. And that's not in any way a threat at all. I just think that's reality, unquote. 
Now, Democrats stripped the committee assignments from Marjorie Taylor Greene and from another Republican who had espoused violent extreme views, Congressman Paul Gosar, both of whom also appeared, by the way, at a white supremacist convention. What will happen to them in 2023? They'll have committees. Um, the committee assignment they have now, they may have other committee assignments. They may have better committee assignments. This is no small issue because how Kevin McCarthy handles extremism in his ranks could impact the success of his speakership. At the end of the day, McCarthy is going to be walking a a precarious tightrope. He will be challenged constantly to choose between delivering on a conservative agenda or supporting the wild lies and conspiracy theories of the movement that Donald Trump unleashed. Now, House Republicans say that they will recapture the House and it will be because the country is rejecting the status quo on the economy and crime, immigration, education, and more. But Speaker McCarthy will also be pressured by Trump and others to address issues that are not based in fact. What will Kevin McCarthy do? I often think about the time in March 2021 when CNN's own Manu Raju challenged McCarthy to explain his votes to disenfranchise the voters of Pennsylvania and Arizona on January 6th, after the bloody riot, based on the lies that incited that crowd. Here's McCarthy's defense in part. If Arizona and Pennsylvania were removed in the Electoral College, would President Biden's number lower between lower below 270? No, but Donald Trump said okay, that the House could have no. o- the Congress could have overturned wait, wait. the election. I'm not Donald Trump. So you're asking me the question. You I'm, a- I'm answering your question. You Let me answer your question since you asked me. Let me follow through. So you gave a premise that's not true. Donald Trump tried to overturn the results in Congress, and you support that effort. Well, now you're saying something that's not true. So let me answer your question and show you how your premise is not true. If you listened closely, McCarthy is claiming that he did not actually vote to overturn the election because he only supported throwing out the votes of two states. And that alone would not have actually been enough to flip the election from Biden to Trump. This was McCarthy's attempt to appease the MAGA madness while also simultaneously being a responsible leader. And it's difficult to achieve, perhaps impossible. And it will be a task that will be far more difficult with the mighty powers of the Speaker of the House instead of as leader of the minority. We hope the next speaker chooses wisely. In a moment, an influential voice on the House GOP will join us. Congressman Dan Crenshaw from Texas is hoping to become the chairman of the Homeland Security Committee if his party wins back control of Congress and he wins re-election in 12 days. First order of business, if achieved, we'll ask him next. In less than two weeks, the balance of power in Congress should see a major shift with Republicans in control of the agenda on the House floor. For insight into what a Republican-led chamber could look like, let's bring in Texas Republican Congressman Dan Crenshaw, who joins us now. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us. So on day one, uh, 
Would-be Speaker McCarthy says Republicans will repeal the $80 billion that, fu- that would fund 87,000 new IRS agents. I know you support that, but you almost certainly will not have 60 votes in the Senate to support such a thing. So I guess one of the questions I have is, what do you prefer your party to prioritize should you take over the House? Legislation that ultimately can pass the Senate and become law, or legislation that is appealing to the base, because that's going to be a real push and pull. Yeah, and, and Jake, like you said in your monologue, there's, there's two tracks. Uh, one is the, the idealized version. Okay, this is, if we were kings for a, a day, this is what the law would be. And, and I, I actually think that plays an important role. You've got to show people what you stand for. And then there's the things that you can actually negotiate through, and that's largely through uh, must-sign bills like the budget process. Now, uh, re- repealing funding for IRS agents in the budget, that actually, I, I think, is doable um, within the budget process itself. If, if, if I were to give you at least two priorities that I would certainly like to focus on, and I think there's broad consensus, it's our energy sector and it's our border. Um, and overall, it's a theme of security. Look, it's, it's energy security, reliable energy that has a predictable price for the rest of the year. Uh, it's economic and financial security, so generally lower taxes and less strangulatory regulations from the government uh, that reduce investment. You know, again, just the basics here. Um, securing our freedoms, securing our, 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 our parents' rights to go to, to, go to school board meetings and, and protest, or at least get a clear idea of what the curriculum is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so, and border security, of course. I mean, you've got fentanyl coming across in droves, and uh, it's killing almost 80,000 Americans a year. That's just fentanyl. Now, that's a bipartisan issue. It's got to be. I mean, that's a unifying issue. This is a common enemy that we've got to focus on. I think every American should know the names of these guys who run these cartels that are poisoning our kids. Yeah. You know, it's the number one cause of death for young adults. One of the first orders of business, of course, uh, for the next Congress uh, will be to raise the debt ceiling uh, and to avoid a government shutdown. Um, It's easy to be in the minority and vote uh, in a way that will appease your base or please your base. Um, but if House Republicans take over, you guys are in charge of keeping the government uh, running. You guys will be in charge of keeping uh, the government funded and, and uh, to increase the debt ceiling. Do you think that there are going to be enough Republicans ready to govern? I, I, I think so. Look, I, I, I obviously got some who will vote no, no matter what. And look, we're, we're well aware of that fact. It is time to govern. And you do have to gather around the votes those two points, the, you know, refunding the, the government um, and to avoid a government shutdown and the debt ceiling vote, those are both points that, look, they're, they're difficult political times. Uh, nobody likes them, but they are necessary evils in a sense because it's the only time that you can actually negotiate ways to get our budget under control. You know, we have to all agree on this, that, that, that a fiscal cliff is near, and it's difficult to predict when that happens. But We've spent a lot of money in these last couple of years, and getting our budget under control, getting our debt-to-GDP ratio under control has got to be a priority. So one of the things that I look back at the last Congress, and, and I think there are a lot of people in this country who look and say, we want people to work together. We want Democrats and Republicans to work together. Uh, and so they were happy about the CHIP Act. They were the CHIPS Act. They were happy about the infrastructure bill. They were happy about... Uh, the bill that Senator Cornyn uh, worked on uh, after the tragedy at Uvalde, because they they want compromise. Um, You talked about the fentanyl crisis, a huge problem in this country. One of the areas where there's always real difference between Democrats and Republicans is 
Republicans want to focus on border security and Democrats want to focus on treatment and some of the root causes for uh, dependency. And I'm just wondering, is there a willingness, will there be a willingness, assuming you take over, uh, the Republicans take over and, and you know, you're running for chairman of the Homeland Security Committee, uh, if you take over in that position, if you win that, that role, is there a willingness to, even if you don't want to work with the Democrats in the House, to reach out to the Democrats in the Senate whose votes you're going to need. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, uh, we will definitely be the first ones to try that. It, it, I will do whatever it takes to secure our border. Um, and it, it's been difficult working with Democrats on this issue. And, 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 and i got to say, Democrat politicians, we, we should be specific in how we say that, because you, you talk to Democrats in Texas, uh, they want the border secure. You know, South Texas is turning red, going to, I think, vote in uh, some Republican candidates just because of the border crisis. Uh, and so, you know, this is a Democrat politician issue for some reason. And, and yeah, they, 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 do, they do give these slippery arguments about, well, we want to address root causes. We can't just, you know, secure, it's not humane to secure the border. Well, it's not humane to let everyone cut the line when there's millions of people trying to do it the right way. It's not humane when Border Patrol is fishing dead bodies out of the river. It's not humane with all this human smuggling. It's not humane when the cartels are enriched by this crisis, uh, facilitating it and pushing fentanyl across. And so, this has got to be bipartisan, and enough has got to be enough. And, and look, this is why I think it's actually important for us to also talk about the cartels. I mean, this is a common enemy, all right? This is a common enemy that is, that is lacing street jugs with poison and killing nearly 80,000 Americans a year. Uh, we should be funding a task force that directly targets this. Why aren't we seeing big arrests for, for these cartel members that are not only pushing fentanyl across, but actively facilitating the border crisis? They, they have every one of those people pay them like 300 bucks before they cross the river. Yeah, this, is, know, this is an active violation of our state sovereignty and national security. I, I hear you, but I have to say something you just said doesn't fill me with confidence about the uh, effort to, to find common ground because you referred to Democrats talking about um, root causes of dependency issues as slippery arguments. And, you know, I have to say, uh, knowing a little bit about the fentanyl crisis and the opioid crisis, I don't know that it's a slippery crisis, maybe a slippery argument. I mean, I think maybe you disagree with their approach to border security, et cetera. But I think that that is part of the situation. And in fact, if you look at President Trump's task force uh, run by Chris Christie and Kellyanne Conway talking about opioids, they talked a lot about root causes for drug dependency as well. It's 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 not it's not a cop. I understand that that you Uh, want to focus on the security. I think we're talking about two different things. Yeah. No, no, we're talking about two different things. When I, when I was taught, referring to their arguments about root causes, what they're often referring to is root causes in Guatemala, root causes in Honduras, which is incredibly difficult for us to solve. Okay, so, but, but I totally agree with, with tackling the fentanyl crisis at all angles, including root causes. There, there's actually very little disagreement there. There's been a lot of bipartisan legislation, in fact, on, on dealing with opioids at the treatment level. Um, but... But again, it, the, the fentanyl crisis is a little different than opioids. And I actually, I distinguish between these two things because people, people are addicted to opioids. They know, they're, they know they're taking opioids. They know they're taking heroin. What they might not know is that somebody laced fentanyl in some, in some back alley lab into that heroin or into that cocaine or into that Adderall. That is poisoning. And, yeah. and this, is a, this has got to be a unifying call for Americans to say, look, there, is, there is, are a couple organizations that are directly responsible for this. They're right on the southern side of our border. They're well-armed. They're well-funded. And we don't even talk about them like they're an enemy of the state. This has got to be unifying. Yeah, no. And uh, we've, we've covered the fentanyl crisis. And as you probably know, your, your former colleague, uh, Congressman Ted Deutsch, lost a, a nephew to it, a kid that thought he was just taking some 
over-the-counter fine supplement, and it had fentanyl in it. Horrible, horrible uh, tragedy um, and, and too common. Congressman uh, Dan Crenshaw, thank you so much. Perhaps next time I see you, uh, I'll be calling you Mr. Chairman. We'll see. Uh, thanks for joining us this evening. Hope so. Thanks, Jake. 13 years is a long time to wait. So is, frankly, one more day. But tomorrow night, my beloved Phillies will be finally be back at the World Series, making the magic happen. Who better to preview their matchup against the Astros than sports broadcasting legend Bob Costas? He'll explain why this is being called one of baseball's biggest mismatches in more than 100 years. But I have more for you on, on that. That's coming up. For this next story, I am quite biased. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. Tomorrow night, my scrappy Philadelphia Phillies play in Game 1 of the World Series against the Houston Astros, who cheated, as you might remember, to win the World Series a few years ago. Now, I could talk about the sports history between the two cities if I wanted to, from the 1980 National League Championship Series, which Philadelphia won and went on to win the World Series that year, or how the Eagles were 6-0 against the old Houston Oilers and have never lost to the Texans. I could point out how Moses Malone left the Rockets in a trade to the Sixers and immediately won an NBA title in the, I think it was 83. I could talk about the last time an underdog Philadelphia team faced off against a powerhouse club with a record of cheating. That, of course, was the 2018 Super Bowl when the Eagles trounced the Patriots. But since I clearly cannot be objective here, I thought I would bring in a guy who knows a thing or two about sports. His name is Bob Costas. I'm not sure if you've heard of him. He's here to help me out. Um, So, Bob, thanks for joining us. Every World Series is full of storylines. What is the one you're watching the closest this year in the World Series? Well, Dusty Baker is a storyline. And in fairness, and I realize you're having a little fun with your hyper-partisanship for Philadelphia teams, which you're entitled to. But once the sanctions came down, the Astros weren't able to use any nefarious tactics. And they made it as far as the ALCS six straight years, and they've been in the World Series four out of six. So we can't attribute that to banging on trash cans. This year's Astro team won 106 games. They've blitzed through the postseason so far at 7-0. They are a really good team. Dusty Baker will likely make the Hall of Fame as a manager, plus he was a very good player, and he's a beloved figure, 73 years old, kind of a wise man of the game, wonderful storyteller. The only thing he doesn't have on his resume is a World Series championship. He's been to the World Series, but he hasn't won it. So his pursuit of that one thing is a storyline. But the Phillies are also a storyline. They won only 87 games. In the expanded playoffs, there are now 12 teams playing in October. And only one, the Rays, who won 86 games, had a lesser record than the Phillies. But a pennant race is a 162-game challenge. But the postseason now has become a tournament. And in a tournament, it's which team gets hot and stays hot. And the Phillies are not the team that won 87 games during the regular season and was the sixth playoff qualifier in the National League. Right now, they're playing terrific baseball. And they've got Nola and Wheeler set up. Of course, they'll face Verlander and Valdez, so that might be a push. But in any case, they're playing their best baseball. And if they can get out of Houston the first two games with a split, they come back to Citizens Bank Park for games three, four, and five, the place will be crazy and who knows what might happen. Yeah, I was there uh, when they won the National League Championship. It is crazy. The, the, the city of Philadelphia becomes a player on the team. On paper, sports mm-hmm. wags note that this is a mismatch. Obviously, the Astros won 19 more regular season games than the Phillies. This is the mm-hmm. biggest differential in 116 years. 
The Astros also, as you know, they have not lost once in the postseason. Now, I want to go back to that 116 years ago because that precedent Mm -hmm. is when the underdog White Sox beat the favored Cubs. Yes. So as you acknowledge, it's not all about what's on paper. Yeah. Well, that team, the Cubs, won 116 games in a 154-game season. In 1954, the then Cleveland Indians were 111 and 43, and Willie Mays and the New York Giants swept them four straight in the World Series. And we've had teams like the 87 Twins, who did not have an imposing record but beat the Cardinals in the World Series. The Cardinals themselves in 2006 snuck into the playoffs, got hot at the right time, and won the World Series. The Seattle Mariners won 116 games in 2001 and didn't even make it to the World Series. That's kind of the nature of baseball. Are there upsets in every sport? Sure. But in a short series in baseball, just the nature of the sport makes it more likely that the team that appears to be the lesser team on paper has a better chance, not a better chance to win, but a better chance uh, if they played 100 games, not a better chance to win, but a, a decent chance to win a best out of five or a best out of seven. So, Bob, stick around because uh, I, I have more questions for you, uh, not about baseball. Okay. Uh, you're going you're gonna to stick with us. We're okay. going to talk about the NFL's new concussion protocol and what more can be done to keep players safe. I'm, I say this because my son just took up tackle football. He's 13. That's next. Mm-hmm. Frankly, I could talk with Bob Costas about baseball for like eight hours, but we're also in the heart of football season. For the next uh, 27 straight days, you can watch a football game, whether college or the NFL, every single day until right before Thanksgiving. Uh, That is uh, a Christmas gift for Bob Costas. So thank you so much for sticking around, Uh, Bob. So I want to ask you, it's been a couple weeks since the NFL put their new concussion protocols uh, into effect as a a parent of a football player. Uh, My boy, my 13-year-old, is now... Uh, playing tackle football. He's in seventh grade. Do you think we're still taking baby steps when it comes to head injuries? Well, I think there have been significant steps taken. Uh, There used to be denial. The NFL treated it the way uh, the cigarette companies treated the connection between cigarettes and lung cancer for a long time. They denied there was any connection between football and CTE. Now they openly acknowledge it, and they do everything they can within the nature of the game, equipment changes, the protocols put in place, etc. But as someone once said, the biggest problem with football is football. It's the very nature of the game. Injuries in other sports are by and large incidental, although obviously they happen. In football, it's just fundamental. It's a contact sport on every single play. And the sub-concussive hits, especially the linemen, linemen collide on every play. That doesn't result in a diagnosable concussion, but there are subconcussive hits on almost every play. And cumulatively, that takes a toll. So the very nature of the game, as exciting as it is, as interesting as it is with all of its strategies and the generational connections and all the excitement and in college sports, the campus atmosphere and all that stuff, that's undeniable. But so, too, is the very nature of the game. Yeah, no, it's, it's true. Some 2 million kids play youth and high school football. Uh, neurosurgeons tell us the real risk is, as you note, from the, the cumulative hits uh, to the head, whether or not they're concussive. Yes. You, you've been vocal in your criticism of the NFL. 
they have, of course, a financial incentive to keep star, star players on the field. Why do you think it is that lower levels mm-hmm. of the game have been slower uh, to change? Well, they may not have the resources uh, to bring the medical personnel to bear and to bring experts to bear. Uh, but the research shows that the earlier you start playing, and if you continue to play, you start playing at a peewee level and then right on through high school and then into college, the earlier you start, and therefore the longer you play, the greater your chance of having some sort of lasting damage somewhere down the road. It's just a fact. I, we had, uh, my wife and I had dinner with a, a family who, whose son plays lacrosse and, and uh, he had a concussion. And they recommended this thing called a cue collar. I'm not sure you've heard of it, um, but it's this thing, it kind of pinches your neck and supposedly it uses the technology mm-hmm. that woodpeckers use in terms of just like an extra degree of, of uh, protection for the brain. But you haven't heard of it? No, but uh, just I'm not an expert in either area, but, but a woodpecker must by nature have something within its, within its skull that allows it to just you know, peck away constantly. I, I guess we can't even keep track of how many times because it moves at such a, a blurring rate of speed, but their, their brains or their heads or skulls are constructed differently than, than a human sure. skull. But I get, the, I get the concept that maybe, I, I, you know, maybe we as can my apply some say, of that to a human. As my people often say, it couldn't hurt. Um, Bob Costas, uh, thank yeah. you so much. It's always, exactly. it's always good to see you. There's a new film out tomorrow. It's set in 1960s America. And yet it's still, even though it was set in the 60s, it couldn't be more topical. One of the stars of the film, uh, the film is called Call Jane, is about to join us. The movie depicts the fight for uh, safe abortions uh, in the pre-Roe v. Wade era. It was filmed before we ended up in a post-Roe v. Wade era. Uh, Actress and director uh, and superstar Elizabeth Banks is here. That's next. For millions of Americans, it is one of the most important issues motivating them to vote in the midterm elections. Abortion, which is now fully or partially banned in 15 states. Activist networks are now beginning to pop up around the country with the goal of helping women in those states get access to abortion. This is not the first time the U.S. has seen that type of movement. In fact, there is a film that comes out tomorrow about what life was like pre-Roe v. Wade. It stars Elizabeth Banks and Sigourney Weaver. The movie was, in fact, conceived, written, and filmed before the federal law that Roe v. Wade, uh, the Supreme Court precedent, was overturned. This film is called Call Jane. It's about what was the Jane Collective, a real-life underground operation in Chicago that facilitated more than 10,000 abortions in that city between 1965 and 1973. Elizabeth Banks plays Joy, a conservative suburban housewife whose pregnancy threatens her life because of a heart condition. Joy is eventually helped by the Jane Collective in her darkest hour. Here's a clip. Some women get the chills afterward, but it passes quickly. Okay, this is for your cramps. Oh, they're not that bad. It gets worse. So, um, which one of you is Jane? (laughs) Nobody's Jane. We're all Jane. Virginia started it. Help yourself. Uh, I didn't mean to. A friend called. I found her a safe doctor. And then her friend called. And then her friend's friend. And uh, here we are. 
And Elizabeth Banks joins us now. Elizabeth, congratulations uh, on the movie. You, um, I know you a little bit, and I know that that's not you, and so I was very taken with how powerful the acting was. Um, the movie is about pre-Roe v. Wade America, where women and girls cannot get legal abortions, uh, even in a progressive city like Chicago. Um, now, of course, we are actually in post-Roe v. Wade America, so it's more relevant than ever. Did you have a feeling Roe v. Wade would be overturned when you agreed to, to make this film? You know, whatever the motivations were for making the movie three and a half years ago when I first signed on, they, the film has taken on such an incredible urgency in this moment in time. And, um, you know, it, it's a real reflection of the world pre-Roe in which uh, abortions were not safe and legal. And so they put so many women's lives in danger so many women were in desperate situations, and that is the America that we are looking at right now, especially at least in half of the states. And if the GOP had their way, everywhere. Right. So, I mean, it's, you can't watch this film, which deals with women and girls having this um, secretive network uh, where, they, where you're supposed to call Jane, and, and then you get hooked up with a bunch of individuals um, without thinking like, this might actually not just be the future. This might be the present right now. It, it is the present right now for so many women, especially in states like Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama. You know, this is where abortion funds come into play, um, where the Bridget Net Alliance comes into play. These are organizations right now that are uh, helping women access abortion care in states where it remains um, safe and legal, helping women pay for child care, travel expenses, um, you know, the... It's a real economic injustice, forced birth, and I think um, we can't remind voters enough about the economic realities of forced birth. Um, every woman, uh, you know, the majority of women who uh, access abortion care in America are already moms. So they're already very well aware of what abortion physically means, or sorry, what pregnancy physically means to them and what raising children means. And these are women who are making family plans. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's such an economic issue for so many people, ha ha the expense of raising kids. One of the most moving scenes and striking yeah. scenes in the film is when Joy Griffin and her husband, played by Chris Messina, go before this board and this board, all-male board, uh, debate, discuss, vote on whether or not they're going to allow her to terminate her pregnancy uh, which, as I said, could kill her. And, and the board acts as if she's not, she's not even sitting there. Um, tell me about filming that scene. Yeah. You know, it's, I think so many women can relate to the notion right now of feeling like the decision um, when and with whom and if to have kids is no longer their own. I mean, that is the case for women in whatever, more than a dozen states right now in America. And I think that, you know, nobody, <laughs> nobody wants Lindsey Graham or Clarence Thomas in their doctor's office with them when they're making this decision. But that's, that's where we're at right now. You know, a group of, um, a small group of politicians making decisions for millions and millions of American women and families and parents, and I, it's, it was that feeling, that oppressive feeling of not being in control of my own destiny um, once, especially now that Dobbs has happened, but that really made that scene feel real to me. So 
you're obviously a supporter of abortion rights and you're very passionate about it. Do you think this film is for people who agree with you on abortion rights? Is it for people in the middle of the road? Is it people who might even disagree with you? Who do you see as the audience? You know, it's a really entertaining film, Jake. I know that you saw it. I bet you laughed. And um, we really felt like the character... (laughs) Thank you. We really felt like the character of Joy was almost an invitation to um, women. You know, she's very relatable. She's a woman who never thinks she's going to have to walk the path that she does. She never thinks she'll need to access abortion health care in her life. And um, it's, it's pretty judgmental of people who do. But once she needs that care um, and meets the Janes, her sense of empathy for people who have to walk that walk, uh, her sense of care for what that means really comes alive. And I, I think if anything, I want anybody who sees the film to take away from it a, a greater sense of empathy for a path that they may never walk. All right. Well, you're great in this new film called Jane. Elizabeth Banks, good to see you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. Tomorrow, we're going to have two big guests, Dr. Anthony Fauci. He's winding down his extraordinary government service. We're going to talk about guidance from health officials being politicized and much more. We're also going to talk to the actor F. Murray Abraham, who is among his uh, most recent credits in the new season of White Lotus. So that's tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Eastern. Our coverage now continues with the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful Laura Coates and the awesome, totally awesome Allison Camerata. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.